Hello and welcome to BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Rue of BTN, and we're one day removed from Big Ten Basketball Media Day. I know we've been talking a lot of Big Ten football here on the show in the first five or six weeks of the season, but uh, it's time to kind of overlap a little bit. And as we've done the past couple of years, soon after Big Ten Media Day, bring back Mike DeCourcy of Sporting News and the Big Ten Network. He's an analyst for us as well to preview the Big Ten basketball season. We're about a month away from first games tipping off, and I'm pretty sure there's no one out there who can go as in-depth on every Big Ten team in the span of about 45 minutes than Mike DeCourcy can. Um, every time I have him on, I'm kind of amazed at how he can just basically go 12 deep on every team and know their schedule and know who they played in years past and, and um, really just... Uh, go in depth 1 through 14 in the Big Ten and he does that for the next 45 minutes or so coming up on this episode of the Take 10 podcast so really extensive Big Ten basketball preview with Mike he talks about what he saw at Wednesday's Big Ten media day in the Chicagoland area and um, we also squeeze some football talk in not with Mike but after Mike wraps up with uh, our weekly in-house guest Harold Shelton uh, if you're not familiar with the show, Harold is our BTN researcher, and he hops on pretty much every week in Big Ten football and basketball season to talk about the uh, weekly matchups and the trends and stats and analytics and all that good stuff. And um, Harold and I talk Big Ten football from this past week and what is coming up this weekend um, in the sport. So healthy dose of both football and basketball as that time of year approaches where the Venn diagram kind of crosses and these sports uh, start to blend. So jam-packed episode, a lot of good stuff. We'll get into Mike DeCourcy first. It's Take 10 Podcast interview with Mike DeCourcy and it starts right now. Very pleased to be joined once again by Mike DeCourcy, the longtime writer at the Sporting News and also a PTN basketball analyst. Follow him on Twitter at TSN Mike. Mike, welcome back. How's it going? Uh, very well, Alex. Uh, I'm excited to be getting ready for another year at BTN. Uh, uh, it's going to be uh, an interesting season in the league uh, with probably, in a lot of ways, the strongest national championship contender on paper that the conference has had in a while, maybe going back to, say, 2013 uh, when uh, – when Indiana came into the year with such high expectations with Victor Oladipo and, and Zeller and, and, and all that group. Uh, so, uh, it should be uh, really exciting. And, and, and I, and yet, uh, even with, uh, with Michigan state being such a great target for everyone, I, I do think there's a, a, a fair amount of depth in the conference as well. Yeah, we'll definitely get all, uh, get into all that in just a moment. And, you're right that the Spartans uh, brought a ton of hype yesterday to Basketball Media Day. It's hard to believe that Basketball Media Day is already here. I think it was a full week earlier than last year uh, taking place on October 2nd. This is kind of our tradition now to uh, catch up after Big Ten Basketball Media Day. And, and knowing that you're a fashion-conscious individual off the top, um, before we even talk basketball, i got to ask you, any fashion choices stand out from the contingent of Big Ten Media Day outfits yesterday? I thought you know, when when Archie Miller sat down at he was the last coach to come in to sit at the podium during the uh, 
during that portion of the of the day they they, they start they for those who uh did not watch on btn they started with each coach getting 10 minutes to question uh, question and answer period with reporters and then after that they break it up to uh coaches and players sitting at tables a little bit more uh one-on-one or one-on-one on 10 interaction kind of deal uh and so when he sat down i i, I right away like his blazer he, he had a sort of a it wasn't a deep red blazer but it was sort of a like a, a slightly uh sort of a rose red blazer that i thought just popped i, I thought it was awesome uh, and then, and then on Twitter, I saw I think it was Juwan Morgan saying that basically that Arch stole it from him. I don't think he literally stole it out of his closet because I don't think Arch and Juwan are the same size. But uh, according to Juwan, that was his color. That was his. That was his look, and uh, and Arch took it over. Yeah, it's kind of the natural natural progression of things because we've seen the players get more and more fashion conscious as we've gone along and now I guess the only thing that's left is for the coaches to catch up and uh, another evolution I noticed yesterday was a couple players rocking the turtleneck look uh, under the blazer I'm not sure if you're a turtleneck guy but uh, I I recently kind of adopted that in the past year or so and in the winter and in the fall it's kind of a good look so I'm curious do you have any turtlenecks in the closet I do not you know I I, I've never liked having all that up around my chin and all that uh I don't mind the look, but it, I don't like the feel. Uh, and I, during the, I guess what it was probably a decade ago, maybe a little more than that, the mock turtleneck thing was big. And and I know that I know that Mike Bray has done his best to try to keep it alive, <laughs> but uh, uh, that that I kind of liked because it was a comfortable feel and a comfortable look. Uh, but uh, I think those days are past, uh, Mike Bray notwithstanding. Yeah, it's Tiger Woods and Mike Bray with mock turtleneck, and then I think. The uh, you know kind of the hip hop culture and um, some you know Hollywood culture has kind of brought turtlenecks back in uh, in vogue. So look out for that this fall and winter. Maybe some coaches will get into it on the sideline. Um, moving on beyond fashion though, uh, and before we get into basketball, it's been a theme when I've talked to you in the last couple of years that there's kind of a big story that looms and hovers over the proceedings of Big Ten Media Day. And the last couple of years, it's been the FBI investigation into college hoops that was going on. And, you know, while valuable insights were definitely uncovered and, and some schools are kind of still being looked into as a result of that, it definitely didn't have the wide-sweeping impact on the sport that some thought as it was kind of unfolding as we look in the rearview mirror. And uh, this year, because of the, the timeliness of what's going on, the, the topic of athlete image and likeness and the new – California law regarding um, college athletes getting compensated was the major story being discussed. So I'm curious if you think this rule will have a widespread impact and a longer lasting impact that maybe uh, longer than maybe the FBI investigation did that kind of fizzled out as we uh, talked about the last couple of years. The comp- concept of name, image, and likeness will have uh, a revolutionary impact on college sports. I don't think there's any question that it's coming. And that it, it, the question is how it will be arranged, and we still won't know that for a long time. But I, the whole California thing is the biggest uh, crock that, that I've seen lately. Uh, California is doing this is not going to have any impact other than on the couple of weeks of conversation it's going to have generated. 
because the NCAA is not going to move because California said move. And they're not going to move because South Carolina, Pennsylvania, or whoever else say move. It, it, they can't do that. There's a, there's a case in court that, that involves this as an, as an item, and the NCAA is not going to move unilaterally on this item toward the idea of granting name, image, and likeness and put themselves at risk to expand the class of people that will be affected by it beyond the future and, and or current at the time they would institute it, student-athlete. They're not going to put themselves at risk of having to pay back pay, so to speak. Uh, they, they ended up having to do that when they went ahead and passed cost of, uh, full cost of attendance for, uh, for student-athletes. When they did that, they wound up in a settlement that cost them over $200 million. And they, they learned a lesson there. They did the right thing in cost of attendance. They had to do it. It, 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 it was never right that they didn't. And you know, back, back in the – back I think when Commissioner Delaney was playing, I think they still had what they called laundry money. And eventually that was eliminated. And, and during the, the period, it's all three decades, maybe four, that it didn't exist. It was never right. So it was good that the NCAA went ahead and, and gave full cost of attendance to various student athletes through the schools that were willing to pay it. Uh, but it cost them a lot of money in, in back pay, for, for lack of a better term. And so they're not going to do that again. Now, if the federal government says, okay, you have to do this, if the federal government could actually get together on one bill and pass it and get it signed, then they would have to do it, and that might get them off the hook for that. But individual states doing it is not going to change that. It may possibly uh, lead the NCAA to accept a settlement or, or verdict or whatever in that case that they don't want to accept. I guess verdict's probably the wrong word, but a settlement uh, in regards to the case that involves NLI, excuse me, NIL, name, image, likeness. Uh, they might accept that, uh, that they, they don't really want, but they're not going to change the rule unilaterally. Yeah, and I, th- I think with a discussion this complex and with things getting lost in translation and, you know, social media arguments springing up, I think the clarity of, of what's going on um, needs to be looked at. Because, first of all, a lot of people underst- don't understand, like on Twitter, that this is not about schools paying players a salary. It's, you know, it's players profiting off image and likeness. And I think people are also kind of looking at it in an archaic way about how this would play out. I mean, I, I keep seeing, like, the car dealership example, if this rule goes into effect, like the local car dealership will pay athlete X to um, be in a commercial. But I, I see this, if this eventually takes hold, it's mainly going to be players kind of being 21st century, um, I guess, influencers. Like they're going to be acting as Instagram influencers, doing the Cameo app, opening their Venmo accounts. And I just think the way I see this being discussed, it's not being understood that clearly. And it's being kind of framed in, in um, uncertain ways. So there's a lot of clarity that needs to needs to take effect, I think, uh, just in the, the national discussion. The NCAA appointed a committee in May to start to look at ways that this can be implemented. And so it's not as if they, they woke up and, and California had passed this bill and they were like, oh, gosh, what are we going to do now? I mean, they, 
I, I don't think there's any question, again, that they're moving toward it. When Condoleezza Rice had the press conference at the conclusion of the Rice Commission's work last April, April 2018, uh, they were immediately asked, well, why didn't you move on name image likeness here? And they and, and she said then, I, I, I think she actually preempted the question because she didn't take any questions from, from the media at large. Uh, but I think that, that she preempted the question by saying there was litigation on this, and so we can't do anything yet. And and I didn't under, really understand that at the time. So then I went ahead and I talked to some people at the NCAA, and they explained the part about what I talked about that that if they move on it without dealing without dealing with this case first, then they could end up having to pay in the same way they did on cost of attendance. So that's why we are in the position we are, but the NCAA is anticipating a move and they're trying to figure it out. The, the, the idea that you said about the car dealers is that's an active possibility and that's something that they have to figure out how to address. Do they want that in their game? I don't think they do. So how do you do this without that being a without that being an issue? And I, I that's those are the tough questions that they that they have to ask and, and, and have to resolve. I think you're right that there are lots of different ways that they, that this could be uh, lots of different avenues it could open up for athletes to to monetize uh, their their uh, name rights. I mean, there's also you know autograph signings. Uh, there's the possibility of lecturing at a camp. Um, there's even the possibility of starting your own camp if you wanted to go to all that trouble uh, of you know of having a clinic or something like that uh, for kids in your in your uh, region or whatever or or start a you know a basketball camp you'd have you know, obviously you'd have to staff it and run it and all that it's a lot of trouble and I don't know that most kids would want to do that but if you were you know if you were a a, a, a small college that wanted to draw kids in to to your basketball camp, you could say, hey, you know, uh, All-American guard so-and-so is going to appear at our camp, uh, you know, so pay your $400, $500 or whatever it costs to go to basketball camp these days and come hear him as well as all the other coaches that are going to be here. I think that's a possibility. So there are a lot of different ways that this that, that athletes could monetize their name and likeness, uh, but the NCAA has to figure out how you know how to make it so that it's not car dealer from state U against car dealer from state tech i'm pretty sure they don't want that in their games yeah it's like i said a complex issue it's something that's going to be played out over years uh, it's not going to be resolved anytime soon it's gonna be something interesting to follow and it's it's just interesting how the last few media days there's always been some yes. overarching uh you know debate that's that's hovered over the proceedings but anyway uh Let's move on to talk basketball. Let's uh, break down what you said should be an exciting year uh, in, in the Big Ten, just with Michigan State being at the top. So we'll start there with uh, you know bona fide national title contender. So my question for you is, how wide do you think the gap between Michigan State and the next tier of Big Ten teams is at this point? Well, first of all, I, you know I think some of that's to be determined by Maryland. They are very talented, but they also lost a foundational player, Bruno Fernando, who was such a difference maker for them. And if Bruno were back, and I'm not saying he should have returned, I'm just saying if if Maryland had returned with Bruno Fernando on its roster, I don't know that there would be that big a gap at all 
but they have to they have, I mean they have a, a huge hole to fill but they also have a, a large complement of talented players I and mean, they have a four-year starter at point guard what a luxury that is with Anthony Cowan they've got an army of young wings some of whom have had spectacular moments and they've all had good moments and and and, and moments where they you know, they made difference making plays in in victories at the Big Ten level so they have a lot uh, they don't have what Michigan State has uh, which is a, a reasonable amount of certainty at, at every position uh, I mean, yesterday um, at Big Ten Media Day Tom Izzo talked about how they lost I think 30 points and X number of rebounds and yes but one of the players that you lost uh Matt McQuaid, uh, who was a wonderful player, um, he he was basically taking most of the minutes that were left behind by Joshua Lankford when he got hurt and Joshua was back. Uh, and Nick Ward in the center uh, was injured late and wound up being supplanted by Xavier Tillman. And the reality is they were a better basketball team with Xavier, more versatile defender. Uh, a you know a more aggressive and consistent player, and not a and not a you know not a huge uh, uh, decline in, in in terms of his offense. Uh, uh, he can face up. He can make a jump shot. Uh, he finishes plays in the offensive uh, on the offensive glass. He's not really a low post guy, but he's probably going to end up averaging somewhere around the same number of points and rebounds that Nick Ward would have if he'd stayed another year. So I don't think that's a huge loss in either department as long as Josh is healthy. Josh has been back on the court for about two weeks, I think, uh, two and a half weeks, I think Tom said. Uh, and I talked to him yesterday, and he said he feels good. But obviously there's the uncertainty of what he'll be uh, and how consistent he can be until he gets back out there and does it. Looking kind of into that next tier, Maryland has more experience than a team like Ohio State. Ohio State probably added more talent through, uh, you know, a guy like EJ Liddell and some of the freshmen they're bringing in. Do you think Ohio State is in Maryland's tier, and um, are, are they you know, a top four Big Ten team? Yes, I do definitely think that it, I, most of the consensus uh, seems to be that uh, you've got Ohio State at the, excuse me, Michigan State at the top, Maryland slotting in behind them, and then. Ohio State and Purdue is kind of like a a uh, uh, an ice cream flavor kind of deal where a lot of people prefer Ohio State, a lot of people prefer Purdue, but everybody kind of looks at them as being the next couple of teams. And then from five down, you have the idea that a lot of teams could go, you know, maybe from five to 11, five to 12, you have a lot of teams that could go either way. The, the, if all the breaks go their way, they could be really good. If all the breaks go against them, they could struggle, especially in a league with so many capable teams. But Ohio State looks like a solid team. You have a guy like Caleb Wesson, who is you know really talented and and a difference maker when he's on the floor. And and people talk about the one concern with him is just staying on the floor more, playing smarter with, you know, when he has fouls, trying to avoid fouls uh, when he can. Uh, that was his biggest problem last year. But when he's on the floor, I mean, he's a difference maker. And you bring you, you lose a really good point guard 
uh, from a year ago in CJ, but uh, you've got you've got a you know a, a freshman who everybody expects to replace him capably, uh, and then you've got as well you know a, a, a vast array of wing players who who are experienced and capable. Washington, Wesson, uh, Jallo. Muhammad, all guys who are really capable players. Justin Arns had a big day or two last year. Guys who are really capable and and, and could make difference uh, for the Buckeyes. And so I, I think people feel really good about the the them being in the first division for sure. Yeah, Weston was really slimmed down yesterday. I noticed when he was uh, walking around, he looked like he was in really good shape. Um, you mentioned Purdue, and we know that they've proven. You know, more than enough times in, in recent years that it's it's kind of unwise to doubt their ability to reload. Wisconsin's kind of in a similar situation where lost a lot of production, but uh, I think most expect them to have a pretty good year. So how do you see those two teams stacking up? And I know you kind of alluded to the fact that um, Purdue might be in that top tier and Wisconsin maybe a little bit below that, but how do you how do you see those? programs were loading after losing quite a bit of production well with with purdue what they what matt painter has shown is how how adaptable he is i mean one year his star player is a low post guy that you can throw the ball to who catches everything and can turn and score and also can come out and face and make threes and and you're a power team and then the next year all of a sudden you got carson Edwards shooting 25 footers and they win both ways and they win because at the core uh, they, they don't ever change. They may change tactics and techniques, but they don't ever change the identity that they're going to defend you, that they're going to play together, that they're going to play to win and guys are going to embrace whatever role develops for them on the team. And that's, that's how they win. And then they work around uh, offensively. They work around whoever, can make buckets and so that you know this year i I would think that uh, they're not going to have quite the versatility that caleb swanigan gave them in terms of inside outside but they've got a guy in travion williams they can throw the ball uh and and create offense with anybody i mean he's a terrific low post option in terms of his ability to turn and score but also he's an excellent passer so he's going to find guys if he draws double teams he's going to find guys and make the right play and you've got Matt Harms, who uh, I think they're going to try to play them together and and be really destructive physically along the baseline. Uh, and the, one of the interesting things is with what they lost from a year ago, losing Ryan Klein and Carson Edwards, a lot of people said, well, who's going to make shots? And Matt came out right away yesterday in his, uh, in his uh, podium portion of the press conference and said we got a lot of guys who can make shots and people you know i, I know right away i like my head was up wait wait he said that he said they got guys who can sh- who can shoot well then they don't have a lot of problems then uh the, he's talked a lot about sasha stefanovic uh who a year ago um what really struggled and and he explained sasha's struggles for and it really made sense is that when you're a shooter uh, if you miss a shot, you want to get that next one. And the problem Sasha had was he might miss a shot and not for any reason other than it was time to get Klein back in the game. Sasha would come out and then that one missed shot would sit on him and weigh on him 
for a lot of time. And then he'd get back on the floor and he wasn't quite as confident and as happy as he'd been. So he's, he's been really good. According to Matt, he's been really good in practice. He said he's been shooting well over 40% from the new three point line. And he's really excited about him. And then you've got guys uh, like Eric Hunter, who played a nice role a year ago, Aaron Wheeler, who is really physically gifted and, and and anyone who saw last year saw that he has the ability to make a shot. Now he's got to be a guy. He's got to be someone that you can count on to score double figures, not just, hey, look what he can do when, when he has an opportunity. He's got somebody that is going to have to be able to go out there and do it game after game, you know, be in the, in the vicinity of double figures, you know, be someone that's confident enough in all that. I mean, he doesn't necessarily have to come out and shoot Carson Edwards level uh, uh, load of the offense, but he's got to be someone that's really reliable. So I think all those things play into what they're capable of. And I didn't even mention Nogel Eastern, who, while I, I, he's someone that you would call a unique player, not a great shooter, uh, not even really a dazzling passer when you think about it. I mean, it's not like you're putting a, you know, a six, seven Penny Hardaway out there. But he knows how to play. He, he, he makes plays. Uh, he, he makes the right pass. He makes the play to open up an easy pass. Okay, maybe he doesn't see out of the back of his head the way Penny could. Uh, but he knows how to make the right play. And then defensively, he's just you know a, a terror. So that's a guy that, that they can really rely on. They know exactly what they're going to get from him. And now they have had a year where he's been the full-time guy. So they know how to play off him. They know how to play to his strengths. So all that combined really puts Purdue, I think, in a really good position. And as far as the Badgers, one of the interesting things about them to me is that when when I was talking to people over the summer in the offseason, whatever, well, what are they going to do without Hap? I mean, he was so much a part of their offense. He was such a big part of what they did. And... I've talked to people inside the program, and they're like, look, we loved Ethan. I mean, he was great. Uh, who wouldn't want that guy? I mean, 20 and 10 almost every night. But because of the way he played, he took them away from being Wisconsin, which, again, wasn't a negative. But he, they, they had to morph to his talents because you don't ignore what he could do. But now they can go back with the guys they have. Uh, with Micah Potter coming in, uh, you know, with you know, with Kobe King's athleticism, uh, with Brad Davidson's competitiveness, and most of all with Nate Reaver's versatility, uh, they can be the the kind of Wisconsin team that we saw in the early 2010s, uh, back with or, or back when John Lure played, even before that, um, they can be more like that kind of team and play, uh, you know more closer to the swing offense. And I think they feel really confident that they can be successful based on being able to go back to what's their, you know, what's the heart of their program. Absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right that it opens up kind of a fresh dynamic. I have a guy that sits really close to me at work who is a big Wisconsin fan. And he kind of said all last year that they might be better without Hap coming up. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, what the removal from that uh, roster does for the dynamic of that Wisconsin offense. Um, moving on to kind of the darling and the dark horse sleeper, whatever you want to call it, for this upcoming season, uh, and I'm referring to Illinois, 
because they lost 21 games last year. I think that was a program record for losses. But they did beat Michigan State, Maryland, Ohio State, went on a nice run and showed some flashes with Io DeSumo and, and Georgie Bashanishvili and some uh, nice recruiting wins for Brad Underwood that will boost the team coming in this year. I want to get your opinion on if you think the Illini can make a jump that really is necessary for a team that um, has been off the national radar since they last made the tournament six years ago. Uh, do you think that they are getting the appropriate amount of hype? Do you think the fringe top 25 projections are accurate? Well, that's a big jump uh, from sub 500. I believe they finished a year ago to top 25. That's a long way to go. Uh, a lot, yeah, a lot of guys have to do a lot of winning to get to top 25. And you're talking top 25 is a six seed. Uh, that's, that's a big leap. I mean, just getting in, uh, from where they've been and certainly from where they were last year is the kind of leap that if they make it, they're going to be ecstatic. You know, if they make it, they've got the guys, you know, a guy like the Sumu who can be a difference maker in the tournament and, and be, and make them a difficult out regardless of what their seat is. I, I think they were close a year ago, closer than people realize. And, and I, I, I think the biggest problem for Illinois last year the, the thing that really got them was their schedule early was just brutal. It was overwhelming. And and I don't think they ever recovered from the fact that they were asked to do so much early on. And they were close at Notre Dame. They were close in some of their other games. They were close out when they were out in Maui. They had a couple of games where they could have gone either way. And I think their schedule this time is more reasonable, more manageable. Uh, they get they get more, you know, they get more games early. I mean, they have to play Arizona and all that, and Grand Canyon's not going to be easy either. But yeah, they get they they have three or four games to try to figure out how to win after that, and and then they get into a difficult stretch. But their, you know, their uh, Big Ten Challenge game is a home game, and it's not against a heavyweight. Uh, Miami should be better than they were a year ago, but again, you're not having to play Duke or whatever. And then they start league play, and everybody's going to have to play in the league. And then they, you know, and then they play the later in the month. They play the bragging rights game, but they're not they're not weighed down by the overscheduling situation that they were in a year ago. So I think they have a chance to develop a formula. When you haven't won, learning to win is a big thing. Learning lear, learning how to make the plays at the end of the game that are winning plays. That's 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 enormous in college basketball because a, a lot of games that you play, the most important games that you play, are going to be close in the final five minutes. And one team is accustomed to winning, and often the other team is accustomed to not winning. And very often that decides the game. The the team that that has been used to winning knows what to do to finish those games. The team that hasn't won doesn't have the confidence. Uh, the understanding of what it takes to get to that 40th minute. And so I, I think that they can have an opportunity here with, with the way they've scheduled for this year to put themselves into position to go in the heart of the Big Ten with with a better understanding of how to close out those difficult games. Yeah, it was uncanny how the same type of situation kind of played out for them at the end of games last year, whether it was like you said, Notre Dame or 
Gonzaga or, or even a Florida Atlantic where they just didn't know how to win early on and they kind of figured it out moving forward. Um, we got a pair of new coaches in the Big Ten this year. Programs are definitely at different places in their trajectories, but uh, Juwan Howard enters the fold at Michigan and Fred Hoiberg is at Nebraska, which took me a bit by surprise. I didn't expect uh, him to jump back into college basketball the way he did necessarily, but uh, they're there. And the Michigan situation definitely is a surprise as well. If you would have told someone a year ago, um, they would not have believed you or at least would have been skeptical. So uh, what are you looking to see from the new coaches in the Big Ten considering uh, where their programs are at and uh, with them both being NBA, uh, having NBA experience and bringing that to the conference? Well, in, in, in the case of Fred, I, I think that he'll do very well there. He has, he has his own experience to sell. Uh, he has, uh, and when, by that I mean not necessarily being the mayor and being an NBA player. I'm talking about his experience uh, at Iowa State with players like Monte Morris, who wound up in the league, and George Niang, who I believe uh, at least got to, got a run through the league, and I think he's playing overseas now. Um, and then as well, the you know the various transfers he was able to get and solve. Uh, and what I what I mean by solve is a lot of the transfers that he took went in there with problematic pasts. Not all of them, but a, a good many of them went in with, with disciplinary issues or, or, uh, or maybe um, uh, personality conflicts with coaches at their previous programs and went there and no problems. And so he's got that to sell. And, and he's also got what he talked about at Media Day, which unquestionably, as loyal a fan base as anyone in the country has, and they they show up, and I and and I can, I can tell you that even on days uh, when when I was working on in the studio and and they had they had a snowstorm and the lights went on and the game came on and there were still people there and it's like wait a second I mean I, if I remember right I think one of our one of our color color commentators had trouble getting to the game and yet they're all there uh, so that that shows how devoted they are so they'll. It's hard to play at Nebraska. That's a big thing uh, that some of the programs in the country, some in the league, uh, don't have the advantage of, that they can't count on their home crowd to make it difficult for the opposition. Uh, Nebraska always can. And then as well, they invested heavily in the program four years ago, five years ago, with incredible facilities, from the obviously from the arena, but also to the practice uh, facility they have. So he's got a lot to sell. I think he's going to do fine. It may take some time. It's hard to tell because we don't, we haven't seen most of their guys uh, play anywhere, let alone at Nebraska. So it may take some time, or they may surprise us. If they any success they have, I think will surprise us uh, immediately. But over time, it's going to get it's going to get good there. They're going to be a team that uh, that people in the Big Ten have to really pay attention to. As far as Michigan is concerned, it's an interesting situation for for Jawan because he doesn't have a track record as a head coach, but he walks into a pretty good group of players. I mean, he's got three, basically three starters uh, who were on a Sweet 16 team a year ago uh, in in Isaiah Livers, uh, in John Teske, and in Xavier Simpson. Uh, Livers didn't start every game, but I mean, anybody who looked at the big 10 last year knows Isaiah livers was a start, was a starting quality player. So he's got those three guys. He's got a few guys 
to fill in around them. Uh, he's got, uh, you know, he's got some recruits who can make a difference as well. And he has to, he has to grow comfortably into the head coaching role pretty quickly. And I, you know, I don't envy him, uh, because if, you know, it would be like giving me Frank the Ford's job in a way, you know, like, I, wait, I got to follow that guy. I mean, having to, having to follow John Beeline as, as, as respected a, a tactician uh, as there has been in college basketball over the last 25 years, that's, that's a tough deal. And I don't envy Juwan at all that, but I, I got a chance. I, I didn't know Juwan. Uh, obviously he'd been in the league for 20 years and I don't cover that much NBA. Um, and you know, I, I, in terms of his college experience, I just covered him at a couple of final fours. Uh, so you don't really get to know anybody in that environment. So I didn't know him, uh, and I got a chance to, to be around him some uh, at media days. Very impressive. Uh, really enthusiastic, uh, interesting answers to every question, a lot of thoughtful uh, material he provided us. Uh, so I was I was very enthused after uh, after spending some time around him with what he might be able to bring. It's just, uh, like I said, that tough transition to, from – you know, of having to follow somebody as as legendary uh, as John Beeline, that's that's a tough ask. Absolutely, and you mentioned Howard being you know personable and, and um, introspective, and, and I noticed both Howard and Hoiberg. I mean, I know they want to make good first impressions, but they were both really engaging in our one on one interactions, and, and uh, you know, really in good spirits. And it was good to see that, and um, interested to see what both can do. A um, couple of teams out east I wanted to, to touch on because they both kind of intrigue me. Um, Penn State's been a team that feels like it's been knocking on the door in the last three or four years under Pat Chambers, and um, he's going to try again now with, with a pretty familiar group, and that's led by uh, one of the best players in the conference, Lamar Stevens, and then Rutgers has just been slowly building this thing under Steve Peichel, and, and they – Broke through last year with more Big Ten wins than they had, I think, combined in the last several seasons. Which of those teams, or maybe both, do you think uh, has a chance to make some noise in the in the Big Ten and maybe make a a run of the tournament? I think I think Penn State has a higher ceiling, but do you think either team or, or maybe both have postseason potential? I do. I, I put them in the group uh, in the group of teams that I feel better about in that you know, five or six to 12 range. I, I would put those two teams in the, in the group that I feel like has more potential and has, you know, has uh, needs fewer miracles, so to speak. And they just sort of have to play well uh, to be good. Uh, Penn state, for instance, I mean, losing Rashir Bolton was, it was a blow uh, because he was the one guy that could be a dynamic offensive point guard for them. But, they don't have to deal with his occasional shot selection issues, uh, and they can they can work more toward a specific identity. Obviously, that's going to start with defense with this group uh, because it starts at the point with Jamari Wheeler. Can Jamari become a more dynamic offensive point guard? I, I, I'll be interested to see if he can, and if not, can they find other ways to generate offense? And I talked to Lamar Stevens. And I told him, Lamar, Lamar is the first player 
that I voted for for an award from a losing team that I can remember. I mean, he was that great last year. He he had a phenomenal Big Ten season, and usually, if it's a you know if it's close between a couple of players, I'm going with the guys that win uh, because they won, and that's the object of the game. But Lamar made Penn State better last year. And he kept going when a lot of teams and a lot of guys could have just said, oh, the heck with this. I mean, they had such a tough start to league play. And he kept driving, and he started making a difference. And he had a phenomenal year. So do they run their offense through him as as a facilitator as well as a target? He, he suggested that they might. And, and so that may be a way around losing a guy like Bolton. And they certainly have guys who can make baskets. And Miles Dredd is going to be a – you know, he's a guy who ought to be able to shoot high 30s, low 40s from three-point range. Uh, they were very positive. And I haven't seen uh, Isaiah Brockton, Brockington yet, but they were very positive in conversation about what he can add. Uh, and then they're, you know, they were very uh, enthused as a group about Mike Watkins. We all know is is unbelievably talented, physically uh, just massive and strong can be a real difference maker on both ends with his physicality and hasn't been healthy in a lot of ways for much of his career at Penn state. And, uh, Pat Chambers said that Mike's in, you know, in terms of his health is in the best position he's been in for a very long time. And so you've got that. And then you've got the reliability that John Harrop gives you, uh, for when, you know, for if Mike needs a break and hopefully it's no, never anything more than that. But to know that you've got a guy like John who always is in the right place and uh, and is really physically powerful around the rim, uh, I think there's a lot there. But uh, you know, they, they also talked about Curtis Jones, uh, who started his career at Indiana and and uh, and now is and now is back in the Big Ten at Penn State. And, you know, they were very enthusiastic about him. I, I'll, I'll hold a wait and see on that. Uh, because I remember his Indiana career. Not that he was bad, but he wasn't a difference maker. So we'll see whether or not uh, he can live up to what they sold him as at Media Day. But there's enough guys I mentioned there that there's a team and and a team that, that should be competitive. Uh, but the one, they're, 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 they're one of the teams that I was mentioning, though, when I said that you know, they need better crowd support to be the team that they can be. And you, ha- you, you should have to play against a crowd in this league, and you do it almost every other stop. You go to Maryland, you know you've been there. Uh, you go to Ohio State in, in a big game, and, and, and it's hard to play. And obviously, places like Illinois and Indiana and Purdue and Michigan State, I mean, those are tough places to play. Penn State needs to be a tough place to play as well as a tough team. That may be the biggest challenge of all for the Nittany Lions. Uh, for as far as uh, Rutgers is concerned, you know it, it's such a shame for them that they lost Eugene Omaruyi to transfer. Uh, that was a, that was a brutal blow to them because they knew exactly what he could provide. He'd been such a consistent player and such a consistent person up until he decided to take off. Uh, they that they really you know I I, I sort of expected that. Um, there might be some temptation to transfer by some of their guys because they were good enough and because they hadn't gotten there yet uh, in terms of a winning program. But I, honestly, if I, did, if I had to rank their roster or their rotation 1 to 12 or 1 to 9, 
I would have probably put uh, I would probably put Eugene at ninth in terms of the likeliness likelihood that he would leave, uh, and yet he did. Uh, but the guys who are returning, there's still a lot there. Like Caleb McConnell, I think he's really uh, capable. I think that uh, that uh, Ron Harper Jr. is really capable. Uh, I, I think that uh, you know we've seen Geo Baker be a really good Big Ten player on bad or mediocre Big Ten teams. Now it's time for him to be a really good Big Ten player on a really good Big Ten team, and they certainly have the depth and, and physical power up front. And then, uh, do they have a point guard? And, and I think that's the question that they have to answer. Uh, you know, they, they've played Geo there. They've played Caleb there. Uh, you know, they've done all of that. But, uh, you know, is that the answer for them? Uh, or, you know, can, can the freshman Mulcahy, can he be the guy who allows everybody else to do what they do best? Uh, whether it's uh, the guys I mentioned or Peter Kiss or Montez Mathis, if, if Mulcahy, uh, whoever's a triple-double in high school, if, uh, if he can be a facilitator, he's a big point guard, so he fits the, you know, he sort of fits in with everybody else that they have. They're all kind of big and long. So if he can be a facilitator and make those other guys better and mo- more important than anything, allow those guys to play where they're best, uh, I think that Rutgers has a chance to be very good. All right, Mike, the last kind of group of teams that we haven't addressed yet, I kind of categorized them as teams that lost a lot from last year. I mean, Northwestern, Minnesota, Indiana certainly did, and then even Iowa, if you if you, you know, consider Jordan Bohannon potentially missing the entire year with an injury, that's still kind of uh, cloudy as far as what's going to happen with him. But do you think there's a tournament potential – or intriguing potential among that group. Um, the, the group is kind of being projected for the most part as bottom half Big Ten teams. Um, do you think that any of those squads can replenish what they lost? And, and there's certainly talent remaining on on uh, every one of those teams, but how do you see the, that remaining group kind of shaking out and will any rise up into the top half of the Big Ten? Yeah, I think the team that has the, the least – you know, maybe the least proven players, but also the least issues is Indiana. I mean, they don't have uh, a guy like Joe Vieskamp. Uh, they don't have somebody like that, that that's as good as he is or has been as good as he is as a Big Ten player. Uh, they, so, but they also don't have a lot of, you know, they, they don't have a lot of holes. They know who their point guard is. You know, they know that they've got wings. They know they've got size. They added Joey Brunk to to Deron Davis uh, in, in in the middle. So they they know what they've got. They just need to know what they've got, if you know what I mean. And so that that to me is is really fascinating that they can go into the year with a, a, a degree of certainty about who will play, but then they have to establish who they are. You look at Iowa, they don't know who they are uh, because they don't know if Jordan will play, and I suspect that they don't expect him to. Uh, but uh, if he doesn't, then they don't know who their point guard is. And that's their most important that's the most important position on anybody's team. And they lost uh, a, a, you know a lot of talent uh, in the front court. They still have some size, but they're gonna have to be arranged differently. Uh, they're probably more reliant on freshmen than some of the other teams, uh, but you know they've done it before. They're, 
Fran's a very capable coach. Uh, so it, it's sort of a let's see how it works out kind of deal. And I, you know, I hope Jordan plays for his sake because that means he's healthy. Uh, but uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, there was a lot of pessimism with the initial injury, and I haven't heard anybody, you know, re- retreat from that initial pessimism. Yeah, and and Minnesota and Northwestern um, teams with a, a, I'd say a certain amount at stake, and you know Minnesota brings Oturu back. Northwestern has gains and, and some interesting transfers. Do you see uh, anything out of those two teams that suggests that uh, you know they could surprise some people? Well, you know, let's not forget that you know, that Minnesota brings back two guys who were basically. You know, all freshman players, Gabe Kalsher and, and Daniel Oturu. I don't know whether either or both was on the team, but they were all freshman type players. Uh, so there's two really good pieces there. And then also Eric Curry. I mean, if he plays 35 games healthy, uh, that's, you know, that's three really good pieces. And all the rest is unproven, uh, at least in terms of playing in the Big Ten. I mean, Marcus Picard. Uh, played for Pitt, did some good things, but he was on a pretty dreadful team. So I don't know whether that translates or not. I, I think they were they were very much uh, enthused about trying to get him eligible a year ago. It didn't happen. They're probably going to need him more this year than they would have a year ago. Uh, they had a pretty they had a pretty set rotation a year ago. In the end, even after losing Curry. Um, so I think they're going to be happy now that they have Carr, but he's going to have to prove himself. And I'm not saying the Big Ten's tougher than the ACC or anything like that, but like I said, I mean, he can go out and play for a team that I think won zero league games, um, as he did at Pitt uh, in his in his year before transferring. If that's all you want, he can be a guy who plays on a team that doesn't win any games. I don't think that's the goal. So he's got to show that he can play winning basketball as well. Mike, a lot of great stuff. Um, learned a ton, so I'm sure our listeners did as well. Always great talking to you, and I appreciate your time. We'll see you around the studio soon here. I'm looking forward to basketball season. I know football's in full swing, but uh, I'm ready to bring on some hoops. <laughs> we'll get there uh, soon <laughs> enough. I mean, gosh, uh, the season starts, I think, November 5th, so really about a month from today uh, with the huge uh, – Champions Classic at, at Madison Square Garden and Michigan State uh, goes in not as oh they're here too they they are the they are the headline uh, team uh, in a pretty stout group I mean this may be as close as we've ever had in that event to one two three four uh, I we've they've always all been pretty much in the ballpark but I think they might be one two three four uh, on most polls can't wait and uh, looking forward to seeing you and your um carefully crafted wardrobe walking around these halls here so <laughs> thanks alex all right mike appreciate it all right thanks once again to mike for joining me always generous with his time and his knowledge and like i said at the top of the show that uh that well runs deep as far as what he knows and uh what he's seen in big Ten basketball over the years so appreciate him jumping on uh we'll toss it over now to our ptn researcher harold shelton he is uh, joining us for what we call the Stat Head segment, where, as I touched on at the top of the show, he'll go in-depth on all things in this episode, Big Ten Football. I uh, want to definitely keep pace with what's going on in the, in the football world while we 
introduce basketball and back into the show um, with that season approaching. But uh, we are smack dab in the middle of a intriguing Big Ten football season, especially with uh, some of the teams running rough shot at the top, Wisconsin and Ohio State. And uh, Harold will make sure keep track of everything that's going on in the conference. So toss it over now to Harold Shelton. It's our conversation with BTN's head researcher. It starts right now. Excited to be joined once again by BTN stat head researcher Harold Shelton. H, switch back to football mode for me. I know we had hoops yesterday. What's good with you? How's uh, how's your week been? Uh, week's been good. You know, hoops kind of threw me threw me off a little bit, so I'm a little behind. But you know, we're getting back to it, and you know, we got some fun matchups that coming up this weekend. Yeah, for sure. Got a couple top 25 matchups within the Big Ten, which is pretty unique, right? Like, how often that doesn't happen too often. I, I know you uh, touched on it. When we were kind of prepping for the show, but uh, remind me of the stat and fill the folks in on, on uh, the, I guess, unique nature of that occurrence. Yeah, so it's the fourth time in the last five years that the league has had uh, multiple ranked matchups in the same week. Okay. Um, it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider in a nine-season span from 2006 to 2014, it only happened once. It just kind of shows like how deep the league has gotten. Um, and now, you know, we're getting really good games because of it. Right, so maybe something that, you know, wasn't commonplace a decade or two ago as uh, Big Ten is stacked, you know, top 25 polls and all that. It's, uh, you know, like you said, speaks to the strength of the league. So that'll be fun. We will get into those matchups in uh, a little bit here, but let's talk about briefly what happened this past weekend, even though it was uh, almost five days ago now. Um, I think at the top, just Penn State and Ohio State kind of making statements and clearly – you know, Ohio State continuing to separate itself from the rest of the pack, and and Penn State clearly, um, you know, removing themselves from any conversation of them being lumped in with a Maryland, maybe some other of those teams uh, in the East. Did anything stand out in uh, really a pair of blowouts that, you know, if you were a neutral fan, you, you knew it was over by the end of the first quarter almost? Yeah, I think I was probably more surprised with the Penn State one, uh, just because they haven't looked as sharp as Ohio State has. I mean, Ohio State has, you know, blown everybody off the field, and they've done it early. You know, Penn State, you know, they kind of struggled with Buffalo for a little more than a half. You know, the pit game came down to, you know, a coaching decision and, you know, a Hail Mary attempt on the final play. So, you know, they've had some shaky games, um, but that clearly was not the case in College Park. I felt like they had something to prove. It seems like whenever a team wants to – uh, challenge Penn State and like you know become a rival of theirs they kind of take that personally mm-hmm. uh, you know Rutgers tried to do that when they first got to the league and you know Penn State kind of shoot them away and you know Maryland made a huge deal out of this game with the blackout and you know canceling Friday classes and all of that and you know Penn State responded accordingly and that's a series they continue to dominate yeah it's a good point about maybe taking it a little personally because being at that game um by you know the end of the first quarter, you kind of tell that it was over and just wanted to kind of get it rolling and, and get the clock moving a little bit. And Franklin was calling timeouts at the end of the second quarter trying to get an extra score. We've seen him do that at the end of games. He's doing it at the end of half. So, uh, you know, definitely wanted to make a statement on that sideline um, for Penn State. Um, moving on beyond, you know, Ohio State obviously being really good. Minnesota is an interesting team that, you know, might be – from pretty good to really good. We don't really know. They're definitely solid so far because they're 4-0. And they've won every game um, by a very slim margin. So 
Is there a historical context for what they're doing? They, they've won all four games, I think, by one possession, right? Um, who do they remind you of maybe in recent past or recent history of the Big Ten or in college uh, football? Yeah, so I guess uh, so. that's a two-parter for me. Um, I would say that Minnesota, at least for the last you know year and a half, uh, they're kind of Northwestern esque when it comes to you know getting these close games and find a way to win in the fourth quarter. Um, you know when it starts to happen, you know a couple times it's all oh, they get lucky. Uh, you know the audience can't continue, but Northwestern made a living of winning close games. Uh, you know the previous few years under Pat Fitzgerald or became part of their DNA. Uh, I'm not quite ready to say that Minnesota is going to turn into that, but to win six straight one possession games, at some point it stops being luck. Um, they're clearly well coached and don't panic in the in the moment, and you know they continue to find ways to win. I don't think that should be discounted. Yeah, uh, and the, looking at the rest of the weekend, full disclosure, I was caught up with some travel issues in the early part of Saturday, so I didn't see Iowa, I didn't see Wisconsin Northwestern, didn't see Michigan Rutgers. Um, two of those games are blowouts, and then Wisconsin Northwestern got kind of interesting. I know there was some discussion about two point conversions and Fitzgerald going for that um and i did catch the end of michigan state indiana so out of the rest of those games did anything stand out to you i I know um you know we probably didn't expect the northwestern wisconsin game to be as close as it was but wisconsin stayed perfect so anything jump out that we should touch on before moving on uh i would we don't have to dwell on anything but i could just have you know a couple quick hitters i think uh we were ready to crown wisconsin i think uh we can I mean, we should probably take a step back, and even though they're really, really good, maybe they're not quite on the level of Ohio State as we try to make it seem. The old I think pump the jury, yeah, I think yeah. the jury might still be out. Um, defense really good though. I think the Michigan State defense, which we thought was all world, you know, kind of got picked apart by a really good game plan and a and a redshirt freshman who completed twenty straight passes. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of things that we thought we knew. Stuff that happened on Saturday had to make us rethink some things a little bit, and that's the thing with college football. Every week is something different. Sure. And one more thing to touch on. I don't know if you have this off the top of your head or top of your notes, but uh, Chris Ash was fired um, on Sunday, so one day after getting blown out by Michigan. Is this the earliest firing in a while in the Big Ten? I'm trying to remember a midseason firing. I know um, Tim Beckman was fired before, like right, right before week before one, year, right. um, a couple of years ago, I'm replaced with Bill Cuba, Illinois. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else historically that would measure yeah. up to that. Yeah, I definitely remember some like you know mid October, early November firings, yeah. but you know through five weeks seems very rare. Um, I, I it's guess. interesting that they waited for five weeks, you know, after probably the four game rule, so you don't want to have a mass exodus of players. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, and then I think. You know, they, they at least show, you know, some signs of life against BC. You know, that game was relatively close, but then you follow that up with, you know, being shut out again. Mm-hmm. You know, that's two straight in Big Ten play. And, and I think at a certain point you're kind of like, okay, we wanted to give you, you know, another year to show some progress. You really haven't shown it. And so I guess they decided to, to pull the plug and try to get a jump start on who the next guy will be. It'll make the Rutgers games the rest of the year more intriguing, I think, and, you know, see if – not only if those guys get up for those games uh, uh, on that roster, but um, you know if if it was something 
like a case of them getting beat down under under not that it was Ash's fault, but just kind of the same results over and over. We'll see if a spark is lit there. Um, let's look ahead now to, to this weekend. Um, just as of this episode dropping, just a day away from uh, from the games getting underway on Saturday. Um, and we'll start with the, the two good matchups that you referred to at the top of the show. Um, Iowa, Michigan, we got the number 14 team at number 19, Michigan. And, and Michigan, you know, even though they did blow out Rutgers, I think those fans and everybody else is kind of waiting to see them get tested again for real. And um, Iowa's the team to do it. So what are you expecting out of this game? And who do you think comes out looking better? Because I, Iowa hasn't really... Um, look too shaky all year. I know the, the Iowa State game was a close call, but Michigan, I think, is still way more uncertain about what they are. So uh, what are you looking for out of this game? I honestly don't know what to think of Iowa. I mean, Iowa, you know, they've, they've been very Iowa in terms of, you know, they control the clock, you know, third and time of possession. You know, they don't turn it over. They don't commit penalties. You know, so they've done all of the very Kirk Ferentz, Iowa ball style mm. things that have allowed them to be successful for the better part of two decades. But the three three of the four teams they played are outside the top 100 in scoring offense. The other one uh, is a decent team that just lost at Baylor the week before. Uh, you were out game by 100 yards against Iowa State in that game, and you barely won it. So it's kind of hard for me to say that, you know, how good they are because we really don't know. At least with Michigan, like – you know, we saw them play Wisconsin, and it was dicey, and they had to go back to the drawing board. You know, this is a start of a really tough stretch. You know, they still got Penn State. They got Notre Dame coming up. And so, you know, we're going to find out a whole lot more about them. But I think uh, I think Michigan actually is going to win the game. Um, I think Iowa kind of gets exposed in the, the back seven, specifically in the secondary, if Michigan actually does throw the ball down the field. Uh, Iowa hasn't had uh, success getting to the quarterback, um, which has been kind of a surprise considering how great A.J. Epinesa has been. Uh, so I think if Shea Patterson gets time to throw with those three receivers, that they'll make enough plays to pull it out. One thing I'll be looking out for is, and I don't have the stats on this, but just it's one of those feel things. I feel like Iowa runs trick plays on the road a lot lately under Kirk. Like they, they did it against Penn State last year. They did it against Illinois last year. I'm looking for a trick play. At Michigan, maybe like yeah, first second quarter. Yeah, he definitely likes to pull them out early. I mean, onside kick or something. Yeah, he had like two or three in that Penn State game, and one that backfired big time. But a couple one that, of them worked, that though. hit, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that'll be uh, something to look out for. Oh yeah. Um, moving on to the other ranked game, you have a special interest in this being our Michigan State guy, as we always say. Um, Sparty at Ohio State. How does Michigan State keep this close? Keep this a game? Do you think they have a chance? Give me the the green and white take on this. So Ohio State has a ridiculous first punch, and teams have not been able to recover from it. Uh, you know, they stagger you in that first quarter, and then they just completely wipe you out in the second. And so, you know, I was doing the numbers on this, and Ohio State has outscored teams 110 to 10 in the second quarter. In five games, teams have negative rushing yards <laughs> combined in the second quarter. So that's why every game has been over with at halftime. Michigan State has to find a way to withstand that first-half barrage, at least make it a game in the second half. Because at that point, then a, a untested Justin Fields will have to make some plays under pressure, which he hasn't had to do yet. And, look, they're, they're more talented than Michigan State. You know, they probably have the advantage in most areas. But 
an area that Michigan State is really strong at is on the defensive line. So if they could find a way to corral J.K. Dobbins and make sure that he doesn't beat them, if Fields beats you over the top, you can live with that as opposed to, you know, the way Ohio State's been running the ball and everybody else. Yeah, that formula, it almost sounds like, you know, win the coin toss, receive, run the ball, control the clock, don't let Ohio State string possessions together in the in the first half, and, and maybe you have something. Uh, Connor Hayward, gone, is that? Yep, yeah, he entered the portal. Um, can't say I'm too surprised by that. You know, he entered the year uh, thinking he'd be the starting running back. Mm-hmm. He lost that job after a week. Um, you know, he was still playing, but not as much as I'm sure he would prefer. Um, you know, best of luck to wherever he decides to go. Um, I'm not sure if it's, you know, FBS or uh, if it's a, or I should say, power conference or, you know, group of five. I'm not really sure, but um, can't say I was surprised to see him leave. All right, moving on. Um, Northwestern and Nebraska. They had that crazy game last year where it looked like Nebraska was going to get their first win under Scott Frost. They uh, completely, you know, choked that game away at the end, and, and Northwestern kind of started their snowball run to Indy and now we're at a point where both teams really need to kind of breathe a little life into their seasons right like you thought Nebraska was going to get a little bit of momentum after beating Illinois they get waxed by Ohio State uh Northwestern's sitting at one and three right now you know teetering on what could be uh, a descent into maybe a not so great season so what are you looking for out of this game um it's certainly teams with contrasting styles it seems like do you think uh, who do you think I guess has the upper edge in this one? Uh, I think Nebraska would have the edge just on paper, but you know they seem to have the edge against Northwestern a lot on mm-hmm. paper, and that hasn't really seemed to matter. Uh, the road team seems to win this game a lot in this series, which is another weird thing. Um, the last two games between them have gone to overtime. You know they've had five games uh, in this decade decided by three points or fewer. So I mean, like this is a game where. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if it came down to a final horn again. Every single game in Lincoln has been decided, you know, in the final couple of minutes. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that happened again for as bad as Northwestern has looked on offense. They might have figured something out defensively. Um, if that defense could travel for another week in Lincoln, you know, they face a Nebraska team that turns the ball over a lot, has a lot of self-inflicted mistakes. And so, you know, if they find a way to ugly the game up and manufacture some kind of run game, you know, that that might be enough to pull it off. Yeah, Purdue uh, going to Penn State, I mean, Purdue's just so banged up. I don't expect that to be much of a challenge for Penn State. Um, so I want to look at Illinois-Minnesota. Kind of a revenge game or an opportunity for the Gophers. I, th- I think Minnesota is undefeated since losing to Illinois last year, I believe. Uh, the Cats got them, but that was the okay. only one. So that was, that was still kind of the turning point. Yeah. Um, they fired the defensive coordinator after Illinois blew them out, and they've been on this really impressive run since. So uh, I, I just think Illinois probably took advantage of um, you know some some really bad mismatches for them uh, in the running game last year. Um, Reggie Corbin went wild, and I think they're going to try and do the same this year. Um, I don't think they can match up with Minnesota's skill receivers. Um, you know, Bateman and Johnson are really good, and then you, you know you look across skill spectrum to the running backs and it's kind of the same deal so how do you see this playing out I don't expect it to be a repeat of last year but um do you think there's some sort of advantage that Illinois has that they can take advantage of or, or is Minnesota gonna coast a 5-0 here 
Uh, I don't. I don't think Minnesota can coast to anything. It doesn't <laughs> seem to be. It doesn't seem to be in their DNA uh, as of right now. I do think Illinois uh, has a major advantage up front on the defensive side. Minnesota's offensive line has been really, really bad in terms of running the ball and protecting the quarterback. They're the worst team in the Big Ten. Uh, allowed 15 sacks already, um, and they they haven't really played. You know the the Chicago Bears. You know style defenses. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. I wouldn't say Georgia Southern and Purdue and South Dakota Dakota State State. and Fresno State, you know, have a who's who of defensive players and they still can't protect the quarterback. So, you know, the fact that Illinois, you know, they're a team, even though they give up some big plays, they're a team that creates a lot of them. You know, obviously they get a lot of sacks. You know, Batiku is one of the best in the country at that and they create a lot of, you know, tackles for loss. So I think that's that's the way that they win is, you know, just create all kind of havoc and to make sure Morgan doesn't have time to get the ball to those skilled receivers that you talked about. Yeah, I mean, Morgan's coming off a huge game. Um, really impressive performance. Wasn't he like, again, this is a game I didn't get to see a whole lot of, but wasn't he 20-23 uh, or something he, like that? He was 21-22, which is the best. I think it was like 95.5%, which was the best completion percentage by any Big Ten quarterback uh, in a conference game with a minimum of 15 attempts. Like, it was literally the best performance <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've seen from a big team quarterback. Tanner Morgan uh, putting up historic numbers. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't hurt that he's got, like we said, Bateman and Johnson to throw to. So uh, it could be an intriguing game there, but like like we kind of touched on, most uh, eyes will be on the big top 25 matchups within the conference. And this kind of brings me to a final point here. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on if I'm just – not really imagining it, but making too big of a deal out of this. It just seems like this year in college football, um, there aren't a whole lot of marquee matchups or must-see games yet. That could change. I haven't looked at the schedule across the country, projecting out the rest of the season. But, you know, it seems like throughout this year, it's not like, oh, wait till tonight, there's number five versus number eight coming up, or there's, uh, you know, number one versus number four. It just seems like every week it's kind of, a slate that you look at and go, eh, you know, this week's kind of slow. So have you noticed that? Is it going to get better? And why do you think this season has kind of felt devoid of some of the big-time matchups? Well, I think part of the reason is that the non-conference slate was so bad nationally, there just really weren't a lot of great marquee matchups that kind of get you in the mode for it. So, you know, it's been a lot of blowouts, and we've seen, you know, probably six or seven teams rise above everybody else. Um, you know, you're starting to see a little bit more now that, you know, you get Iowa, Michigan, you get Michigan State, Ohio State, you got Auburn, Florida, nationally, mm-hmm. you get Red Rivers coming up. Then uh, I know in the Big Ten, the big day is uh, October 26th. That's Michigan, Notre Dame. You know, that's uh, Michigan State, Penn State. Mm-hmm. That's Ohio State, Wisconsin. So, like, that's going to be that's gonna be a big Big, big weekend to lead you into November before, you know, you get your Bama LSU and your Bama Auburn, your Georgia Auburn. Like, stuff will start to sort itself out here pretty soon. It's just been a slower build than what we're used to. Sure, and I guess it could be because, you know, teams are hesitant to schedule tough out-of-conference games with the way the uh, college football playoff rewards nearly, you know, perfect records. And I think it kind of speaks to a uh, antithesis of, of what I've heard from proponents of a four-team playoff like the four-team playoff um contingent always seems to argue that if you add more teams it devalues the regular season i think it's the opposite i think we're seeing a devaluing of the regular season at least in the non-conference 
um, due to the, the you know the fact that teams want to remain perfect or as close to it and want the easiest path to that. I mean, you look at Clemson, they're going to roll through, probably go 12-0, and 0, probably should have lost last week without really playing anyone of, uh, of note, not even a top 25 team in there. So, you know, you, you it's the only sport that, that tries to make this argument about the importance of the regular season. Uh, no other sport that I can think of really does that. And I, I think it would make the regular season better because, um, I mean, you look at it now, there's, like you said, six teams that are probably on a similar playing field, and um, two or three of them are going to get left out. Yep. So it's going to be interesting to see. I think I think this type of season is the best argument yet for a six to eight team playoff. Yeah, I agree. I, I've always been a fan of six. I don't want eight. Um, I think eight is almost a little bit too many because then you could still get teams to have two or three losses potentially make it in a, sure. in a, in a weird year. But I think six still works, and the top two get by, so you still value the regular season that way. Maybe you get the you get on campus for the first round where it's three, six, and four, five, and then you go down to your your four team. You're only adding two games. Um, you you get a chance to get you know all five champions in if they're deserving. I'm not a fan of the you have to put them in, but if mm-hmm. they're deserving. You know, like the the first year of the, the playoff when Baylor and TCU both got left out with one loss. Like, that's a year where they both could have gotten in and, and both deserved to do so. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely think six would be the way to go. Um, but I guess we'll see what happens. I just think it's going to be one of those things we look back on, just kind of like we look back on uh, voters deciding the national championship game, the national champion um, and just look back on maybe 10 years and be like, I can't believe it used to be that way that we had four teams so right we'll see i, I do think uh to your point with the scheduling uh, that part i think the big 10 kind of read it wrong when people thought that oh strength of schedule is going to matter so much so we need to schedule these really mm-hmm. really tough not conference games so we're going to make sure you know we don't have any fcs opponents or we're going to schedule a power five team out of conference and you know we're going to really strengthen this up but instead you know, if Penn State doesn't play Pitt and they play somebody else in 2016, they're probably in the playoffs. Right. You know, if Ohio State doesn't lose to Oklahoma, you know, they're probably in the playoffs. And so, like, if they don't have these matchups, you know, if they're playing, you know, a Mac school or something else, they're probably in. I mean, Clemson, SEC teams, they can play at FCS. They can play eight conference games and, you know, another bad non-conference game. And it doesn't seem to matter because they can run the table or lose one tough game in conference and people will just give them the benefit of the doubt. So they're not going to change. Yeah. I, I wish other conferences would elevate you know, their level to, to what the Big Ten is. And I like better games. I, I like fewer cupcakes on the schedule. I think most people... Uh, would agree with that. It's just kind of one of those things about college football where it's unfortunate there's not a standardized set of requirements for scheduling. So. Oh, yeah. yeah it's got to be a ton of really good non-conference games next year in the league, so I'm looking forward to that already. All right. Well, we'll have plenty of time to talk playoff and scenarios and conspiracies coming up once those rankings come out in a few weeks. Uh, we'll talk more next week, of course. H, uh, enjoy the games this weekend, and we'll do it again soon. You do the same, man. Have fun. All right. All right, thanks once again to H and, of course, Mike for joining the show and packing this episode with a ton of good stuff. Thanks, as always, to everyone out there for listening. And uh, if you're listening for the first time or if you're listening on a uh, service that you have not subscribed to yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on 
Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Podbean. You can also subscribe to Big Ten Network's YouTube channel and find the Take Ten Podcast playlist on uh, that platform as well. So leave a rating and review if you like the show. Save your negative ratings for some other show that I don't care about. And uh, keep coming back and listening and following. Really appreciate it. Thanks as always. Uh, Got to give a shout out before we log off to Wes White and Julie Bronder. I think Wes is producing this show, so shout out to them for making the show what it is week in and week out. And we will talk to everyone next time here on the Take 10 Podcast.